episode 18 of the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss moving bed biofilm reactors with Dan Turner, the president of Blue Whale Technologies. Blue Whale Technologies LLC provides consulting services and solutions for industrial wastewater treatment, specializing in wastewater treatment and water recycling streams, focused on advanced biological treatment systems such as moving bed biofilm reactors, or affectionately known as MBBRs, membrane bioreactors, membrane separations with microfiltration, ultrafiltration, nanofiltration, and RO, chemical precipitation systems, selective ion exchange, etc. Dan is also an avid skier and into music. Welcome, Dan. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, we're excited. And Dan, you and I met out in the field during a startup for a beverage customer, and I I was talking about the microbes and you were covering the MBBR system that had just been installed. And I thought it would be really beneficial to sit down and discuss with you more about MBBRs in general. So I'm excited to have you with us. Great. Let's talk about how is MBBRs different and how does it differ from conventional wastewater treatment? Well, conventional wastewater treatment systems have been used for many years. These are conventional activated sludge type plants that are essentially utilizing mixed liquor suspended solids to meet a food to mass ratio or biological digestion of organics and nitrification Mm -hmm. of ammonia. One of the important aspects of a conventional activated sludge system is to assure that the food to mass ratio is met with enough mixed liquor suspended solids within a certain sludge age. So the operator needs to then plan on, uh, number one, monitoring the mixed liquor suspended solids concentration, Uh make sure that it meets the food to mass ratio. There's also wasting of the solids periodically, the mixed liquor suspended solids, which is WAS. And there's also a return activated sludge or RAS that then returns the mixed liquor back to the reactor And the whole system needs to be maintained in a balanced type of uh, uh, ratio for meeting the food or organic loading condition based on a number of uh, parameters and operational requirements. The operator needs to be very savvy and you are capable of then maintaining the system by adjusting your RAS and wasting rates, WAS rates. Uh When you have a moving bed biofilm reactor, it is really more of a mass-driven system that is operating on a single pass. The moving bed biofilm reactor has MBBR media, which is typically a polyethylene type media that is neutrally buoyant. Uh The media essentially has an attached growth biofilm. And the biofilm grows within the media, which is essentially concentric circles or cylinders that are nested uh, with radial fins. Or it can be a variety of different shapes and sizes and designs. Typically, they're cylindrical, but they can also be square. Uh And they have a tremendous amount of surface area for a biofilm to grow. So a... Typical MBBR media will have four to 500 square meters per cubic meter of internal protected surface area for a biofilm to actively grow for the degradation of the organics in the wastewater. The one that I was working on with you, it was like a round disc. Honestly, I thought it looked like a communion wafer when I first saw it from a distance, but it had those pores penetrating all through it. 
even though it was a flat disc. I thought that was interesting, you know, way of, of approaching it. Yes, the media then evolved into a media type that essentially has a tremendous active surface area within the matrix of the media itself, mm -hmm. almost like a sponge. And what you looked at and uh, held in your hand, Heather, was uh, MUTAG Biochip 30, which has 5,500 square meters per cubic meter. So and essentially an order of magnitude higher surface area. Yeah. It's pretty sophisticated. Yes, and the biofilm grows throughout the entire wafer, if you will, so that you have uh, active microbes that exist within the pores of the media that provides a tremendously resilient process. And you also have the ability to effectively have higher overall, say, mass loading conditions in a reactor or the reactor becomes smaller. Typically, an MBBR is a third of a size of an activated sludge plant, a conventional activated sludge plant. So it's very, very compact. Uh -huh. And then the MUTAG Biochip 30 even allows it to become smaller, even a quarter of the size of the uh, conventional activated sludge plant. So yes, the, the higher surface area of that media provides tremendous advantages because you can then add additional media in the future to expand capacity because it's more of a mass-driven system than that mm -hmm. of a hydraulically limited system, although there are hydraulic limitations. So the hydraulic limitations are typically, you don't want to go below three hours of hydraulic retention time. This is good news though for people that have like really small space, whether you're industrial or, or municipal. When other time would you recommend such a system? Is it just based on space? No, and, and those are all good points. So applications for the MBBR process can be utilized where if you have a, an existing conventional activated sludge plant, you can use an MBBR as a roughing reactor. Uh -huh. uh, to knock down the BODCOD prior to the conventional activated sludge plant to offload the conventional activated sludge plant if they need to then have a more effective nitrification or denitrification process. Yeah. Or you can also have a system at an industrial setting in a very compact space uh, area or requirement where the operator can essentially operate the system with minimal operator attention on the biological treatment process, which is one of the hallmarks of the system is that it operates on a single pass. It's self-sloughing, self-regulating, uh -huh. meaning that the biofilm will grow exponentially to meet load conditions or then go into endogenous respiration when the high load condition passes. So that you have also the ability to maintain a high level of automation with dissolved oxygen sensors that'll then control blowers to actuate essentially the uh, DO control system to increase oxygen or decrease oxygen requirements based on uh, varying low conditions or to optimize the process as well. So you can have all of this automated in as much as possible so that mm -hmm. all you're doing is you're monitoring your dissolved oxygen and you're assuring that the process has enough uh, nutrients if it is an industrial wastewater that's deficient in nutrients. 
So this is not a system that you want to manage just by hand. You can. I'm just saying it would probably make your day a lot longer, though. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, you can have the blowers operating to maintain a dissolved oxygen level in the reactor at three parts per million. That's the minimum, but it can go up to four, even five. Mm -hmm. So you can over, say, provide air to have a sufficient DO for the biological treatment process, which, you know, more manual systems, they can have an operator go out and take a dissolved oxygen reading periodically throughout the day and assure that the dissolved oxygen level is, is meeting the uh, organic loading conditions. So you, they can be very simple uh, or you can make them very automated uh, with instrumentation and PLC control. Now, a lot of the systems that I've seen MEBRs used specifically with are those with like BOD CODs of 10,000 or something, and they need to get down to 200 or less to go to the municipality. Is that what you generally see, that high of loading, or do you see it in municipalities as well? I see, yes, across the board, municipalities along with the industrial users. Mm -hmm. Industrial users, I would say a, a large portion of the industrial users are 5,000 ppm or less. Once you start going over 5,000 ppm into 10,000 ppm, as far as a bioavailable COD, you really need to look at anaerobic technology as well, mm -hmm. just to make sure that there is going to be a cost-effective return on investment for life cycle costs of the system. But we have applied the technology and applications that have been in the up to 10,000 ppm range. Although there are certain techniques that have to be taken place to ensure that the solids that are sloughed off of the media are eluded from the reactor. Oh, that, that's good to know. Because uh, I, I have talked to some municipalities. They're like, oh, we'll just throw some media in. And I'm like, well, unless you know how that works, <laughs> I don't think you want to you know, just right. throw something in. You know, you want to kind of understand this. Yes. And in, in fact, there's, there's a number of design criteria that need to be met to assure that fixed film added to activated sludge, or in other words, called IFAS, integrated fixed film activated sludge process, mm -hmm. is properly sized, designed. The aeration grid is going to meet the requirements of the additional, say, organic loading. And there's retention screens that are also installed to retain the media within the reactors. Yeah, you don't want that blowing out and going into pumps and, and so forth. Correct. And you don't want to have the media discharged out through a, the end of the clarifier to the river or to the ocean. You know, we want to minimize any kind of plastic <laughs> yeah. that is going to the ocean. We have enough plastic in the ocean that we're trying to deal with. Very true. Very true. We were going to talk a little bit about aeration grids and blowers. Like what kind of sizing are we looking at or types of blowers that you're recommending? What's nice about the moving bed bow from reactor systems is that they can be, like we talked about, compact in a very, very small space requirement. But then on top of that, you can have deep tanks as well. Mm -hmm. For example, the beverage facility that I met you at, those reactors are operating at a side water depth of 28 feet. And in that particular case, the blowers would be positive displacement blowers. Mm -hmm. There are rotary lobe type blowers or screw type blowers that are available with variable speed drives that can be actuated by a DO control system so that it uh, mm -hmm. ramps up and down to meet the organic load requirements, which then 
will provide enough oxygen for those loading conditions. So the blowers are typically positive displacement blowers, but they can be conventional type of centrifugal blowers as well. So there's no real limitations on the blowers, but what we see is the positive displacement blowers that are rotary lobe or screw type blowers are typically used in many applications. The aeration grids are coarse bubble aeration grids for the most part, because once you set up a MBBR bioreactor on site, you don't want to remove the media to then service a fine bubble aeration grid, which okay. is typically provided with membranes that need to be serviced or changed out every three to five years. Yeah. A coarse bubble aeration diffuser grid is typically constructed of stainless steel manifolds and 316L stainless steel diffusers, or they can also be uh, PVC as well. In fact, uh, PVC has been selected for a wide variety of applications as far as the diffusers because of their inert capability of handling high chloride conditions. Did you want to discuss uh, instrumentation a little more in SCADA? Yeah. Let me just finish on the aeration grids. Typically in MBBR, you want to have a flat bottom tank with full coverage. Got it. And then you also need to also look at your upwelling and downwelling so your patterns are properly configured as far as a roll pattern or a, uh, a mixing pattern so that mm -hmm. the influent that's entering on one side of the tank has got a torturous path to get to the other side of the tank because they opera are operating on a single pass basis. And then you can have two, three reactors in series and each reactor will have a specific population of bacteria. As far as instrumentation is concerned, we would typically have dissolved oxygen sensors, which what I like to utilize in this day and age is the luminescent type okay. because of the low maintenance requirements. You'll have uh, pH sensors as well, especially if you're nitrifying ammonia to assure that you have enough alkalinity mm -hmm. in the water to meet the, the nitrification requirements of nitrosomous factor bacteria. You'll also have a high level uh, sensor, which is typically a float type sensor to indicate if there is any issues with the retention screens that could be plugging with foreign material if something got into the reactor that uh, plugged the screen to not allow flow, you would want to make sure that you, you have that information coming back to the operator. Now, do you see that kind of issue more with municipal when they're dealing with the rags and all that kind of uh, inorganics? compared to like industrial? Yes. In fact, that's a very good point. Pre-screening requirements on these systems, we really encourage in the design six millimeter or less. Mm -hmm. And the key to it, the whole sizing of the, of the pre-screening is to prevent any material from building up inside of the reactor that is larger than the retention screens, which are typically in the range of, depending on the media, 10 millimeter type slots or... You can also have perforations like, for example, the MUTAG media, you can have up to even one inch diameter perforations. Typically, I like to go with perforations that are half inch diameter, but you, uh -huh. are you using, typically using screens that are 50% open area or more? That's good to know. <laughs>
I think that's another thing that people forget about is that so much can impact the system. Exactly. And a lot of the MBBR system design work that goes into the, say, sizing and design of reactors is vitally important to make sure that they are designed properly to meet all these requirements. Because once they are in operation, then it's it's minimal operator attention. But the attention needs to be taken place when you size and design the systems even to provide enough freeboard on the system so that you don't have foaming events or loss of media, uh, things of that nature. Yes. And this is the part where I want to kind of transition to what I call the how to talk to the engineer, <laughs> you know, because you know, what information should these customers be bringing to you for the sizing and design of their systems? Like, what do you want to know? This is probably one of the most important aspects of starting a project is to gain enough information so that you fully understand the application parameters for properly sizing and designing the MBBR reactors. First of all, typically you're starting with the flow rate. You want to understand the average daily flow rate, but also you need to understand the peak hydraulic flow rate as well. Mm -hmm. The peak hydraulic flow rate will size the retention screens to assure that you have enough surface area of the screens past the peak flow condition. The average daily flow rate is really an averaging to assure that the uh, overall sizing of the reactors in the media fill fraction is going to meet the design requirements of the reactor for organic load reduction, okay. along with blower sizing. And then you are looking at the wastewater characterization profile, where we need to understand the COD, concentration levels, which are average and peak. Uh -huh. Same thing with the BOD, and these are peak hourly that we are interested in. Total suspended solids, uh, along with total Kildall nitrogen or TKN, mm -hmm. ammonia nitrogen, phosphorus, alkalinity, pH, total dissolved solids, chloride levels uh, to assure that the type of stainless or metallurgy is properly selected, and the temperature range of the wastewater. Wow. Yeah, that'll make a big difference. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. And we need to understand the cold as well as the warm, you know, what that range is. We really want to assure that the temperature of the wastewater is less than 104 degrees, which above that 104 degree F range, the uh, mesophilic biological treatment process starts to fall off and you lose performance and you can kill bacteria. It's a bit of a trick here in Arizona where we get up to 115, 120 during the summer, and there's there's no controlling that, unfortunately. No, there is not. And then on top of that, the blowers are compressing the air so that mm -hmm. you're adding a small amount of heat. Uh, most of that is going up through the reactor, but you do have the drop pipes, which are typically stainless steel that does radiate the heat into the reactor mm -hmm. through a conductive type of uh, transfer, heat transfer. So you have to keep that in mind as well as understanding the wastewater temperature. And so in warm weather, like in Arizona, we really look at having the wastewater temperature less than 90 degrees coming into the reactors because we have seen the temperature rise within an MBBR reactor, even upwards of five to 10 degrees in some cases. Uh -huh. And that's based on high load conditions. Imagine having like a bee's nest of honeybees. If you are able to measure the temperature, it's very warm within a bee's nest because of all the activity of the organisms, right? The bees. Yeah. It's the same thing with bacteria. The higher the population and the faster the metabolism rates of a high rate reactor like an MBBR, 
you can increase the temperature within an MBBR reactor quite significantly. So you have to take that into account as well. So in some applications, we have either cooling loops or if it's cold water, we might have heating loops to assure that we can gain nitrogen. Yeah, because the Arctic freezes that the north areas of America get, that can make a big difference as well. Yes, especially when you get up into Minnesota and Canada, areas uh, like New England. Yes, you can have some very cold conditions. And so we need to make sure that the MBBR reactors are covered in those applications. But then if the water is always warm, you know, then you can go without the cover on the MBBR reactor and cover your equalization tank and make sure the water that you collect is going to be properly uh, maintaining its heat. And that's something we hadn't mentioned yet is the EQ. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I'm going to say EQ, very important for the system. Absolutely. In fact, After 36 years of engineering, sizing, and designing waste treatment plants for industrial users, the equalization process is something that cannot be overlooked or understated as far as the importance. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to capture all of your peak load conditions, and you have to understand the duration of peak load so that you can swallow that peak load in an EQ or equalization tank so that you can maintain a continuous flow, an averaging flow throughout the MBBR reactors. If you size and design the equalization tank properly, the sizing of the reactors can actually be smaller and the blowers can be smaller as well. Otherwise, you have to plan for peaks and valleys, which the peaks can be excessive at times. And so mm-hmm. you have to plan for that with your reactor size. And you have to have a number of reactors to uh, essentially meet your application parameters on the back end, which more stringent it is if you need to handle load variation, you're better off handling that load variation in the equalization tank in as much as possible. So I try to look at the sizing of equalization tanks minimum of 12 hours if I can get it, better Uh 24 hours. When you operate the equalization tank, at about uh, 40 to 50% where you would then have the ability to handle those surge load conditions and capture that volume at the same time, maintain your continuous flow on an averaging basis to the biological treatment process. But it also homogenizes the wastewater, equalizes the pH, the load conditions, the CIPs uh, with the processed wastewater so that you minimize any kind of shock conditions or load conditions that may be significant so that, again, everything is averaged throughout the process. Your chemical consumption goes down, your energy consumption of your blowers go down, everything comes into its own as far as an equilibrium of operation, and you maintain a very healthy population of bacteria as a result. I agree with you 100% that EQ should be a requirement for these systems. I've, I've seen too many wastewater systems where they didn't have EQ and then they just have to ride the wave over and over again outside of MBBRs as well. And mm-hmm. I just hurt for those people. <laughs> you know, they're three times what they need today. And then the next day, because if they're in production, food and beverage or something, the next day, there's nothing. Correct. You know, there's situations where the equalization tank may be undersized, but there are techniques that can be utilized to then get around that as well. If there are high concentration dumps that take place, if they can be segregated and directed to a a concentrated dump tank and bled into the equalization tank, it's a much better process than letting that slug load hit the equalization tank and then end up going through the uh, 
a biological treatment process or MBBR as, again, a slug load that is uncontrolled. Yeah. So there's different techniques that can be taking place, but uh, the more that you plan for this upfront, the more successful the operation of the MBBR will be. And then on top of that, you are not reinvesting in the system time and time again to make sure that you're addressing all these needs as they come up and arise. So the upfront engineering, sizing and design, and the questions and application parameters that are requested need to be answered in a way that is complete. And you also need to predict somewhat of the future as well. What is your overall plans for growth? You know, five years out, three years out, two years out so that you have the ability to increase the capacity of the MBBR from within. And that's one of the actual advantages and benefits of the MBBR as well, is that you can oversize the equalization tank and your feed pumps can be arranged in a way that you can have two pumps to start and maybe three in the future mm-hmm. or size the pumps with VFDs so that uh, you can feed the system with a feed or variable speed control. So all of the system and the, the, the dissolved air flotation system or clarifier in the back end is also sized for the future hydraulic load. Yeah. But you can then increase the capacity of the MBBR by adding media and increasing the airflow by adding an additional blower. So you have the ability to expand the process from within if you plan properly for the future. I, I love how you say if you plan properly. Usually, like if it's in the food and beverage industry, they're like, we just doubled production. I'm like, cool. Did you do anything in the back? And they look at you. Why? That costs me money. Because <laughs> if you don't, <laughs> you're not going to be making twice as much up front <laughs> kind of thing. Yes. You always have to pay attention to the wastewater plant before you actually put in your production lines. So it's, yes, proper planning is really important for these plants uh, going through uh, another uh, expansion of a facility right now that wants to increase their capacity, but they are addressing the waste treatment system first and they'll have it operational before they bring on their additional lines. So, you know, that's the proper way to plan for expansion. I'm like, I'm almost going to come to tears. That's a beautiful thing. Because <laughs> usually well, operators are just I'm, told to lump it and figure it out. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Well, and the other piece of this, Heather, that I'm sure you are addressing on a daily basis is the coordination of production with the waste treatment uh, plant Mm -hmm. is paramount so that the waste treatment plant can then prepare for whatever is going to be dumped or coming down the pipeline or campaigns. They can adjust dosing regimes or chemical additions accordingly. So. Yeah. Uh, coordination is paramount with production and waste treatment. You can't just operate blindly on the production floor with the waste treatment system trying to always react to whatever might be coming down the pipe next. I, I agree. There's been too many hard lessons with that. So, okay, once we've got this plant in place, we've got our EQ, we've got all the everything put into place and so forth. How do we approach optimizing this system? Right. So optimizing the system operation would be in areas where you are looking at the operator and how they can effectively operate this plant to, number one, maintain a healthy population of bacteria. Mm-hmm. And number two, effectively handle the load conditions in a way that the bacteria are fed a steady state diet. This is done through understanding what your nutrient load is, if it's an industrial user, where the wastewater is nutrient deficient, 
Mm-hmm. then you can really plan on nutrient dosing based on meeting those load condition requirements. And nutrient dosing is really uh, based on the addition of ammonia, nitrogen, and phosphorus to meet the BOD requirements for nutrients. And if you look back in the Metcalf and Eddie and Brown and Caldwell yeah. annuals, it goes back to Wes Eckenfelder with the Eckenfelder rule of thumb of 100, say, parts of BOD requires five parts of ammonia nitrogen and one part of phosphorus. As long as that 100-5-1 ratio is met, then you will be successful to maintain a population that's healthy of bacteria as far as the heterotrophic bacteria within your MBPR. So nutrient dosing is mm-hmm. done on a proportional basis. So we look at a proportional flow nutrient dosing regime where a VFD-driven pump is then directing the wastewater through a magnetic flow meter. Mm -hmm. Magnetic flow meter is sending a four to 20 milliamp signal to the PLC controller. And the PLC controller then will send a four to 20 milliamp signal to the chemical metering pumps to increase or decrease the speed of the pumps to meet the uh, proportional dosing requirement to maintain that 105-1 ratio that we've talked about. Now, there can be applications where there's multiple production campaigns. And some of these production campaigns actually will have some additional phosphorus or ammonia available. And you can dial in and it might even have different loading conditions. And I've seen this at, say, some food processors where they're processing one type of food product and then they'll switch to another type and the sugar content is double that of the previous product. So you've got to be able to increase the amount (laughs) of nutrients. So so you can have, say, preset nutrient dosing rates that then can be proportionally controlled. So this is typically the stroke of these pumps or a dosing regime that will be adjusted with the PLC that can yeah. be preset. And with the coordination with production in the plant, they can say, okay, we're going to run red peppers now. So make sure that you can increase your dosing rate. And you can go ahead and select the dosing regime for that particular product. That is uh, preferred. And we deal with nutrients all the time, but I really see that gap in knowledge right there. They'll have everything working beautifully and they'll be like, well, our BOD went to 500 from 100, you know, or five times increase or whatever. I'm like, cool. Did you, in, you know, increase your nitrogen and phosphorus? And they'll look at you like, well, no, why am all, because now you're deficient. <laughs> you really got to pay attention to that because that leads to a lot of the biological issues, the zuglia, the, the foaming issues and so forth like that. If you're not paying attention to that, and that can happen even in municipalities. A lot of municipalities are like, oh, we have mixed flows you know, we're pretty consistent all the time. And I'm like, yeah, but then, you know, you have the rodeo that comes into town or the college leaves (laughs) for holiday or something. It's important to pay attention. Yes, exactly. Or with municipalities or even some of these smaller decentralized systems for schools and things of that nature where, you know, you have times throughout the day where, you know, you have a, a lot of ammonia that is being discharged into the treatment plant. And you've got to be able to adjust for that as well. So there's variations that will occur in these different plants where you've got to have uh, the ability to understand, number one, what kind of wastewater is being generated, how it's going to be then 
responded to with the waste treatment plant, whether it's nutrients or loading additions or aeration. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to optimize the system at all times. And one of the things that you just mentioned earlier with Azuclea in foaming conditions is the MBBR process will react to significant loading applications by exponential growth of bacteria. Yep. So the bacteria will grow exponentially from the biofilm. And as a biofilm begins to uh, increase in, say, microorganism uh, population growth, it'll excrete a extracellular polysaccharide. The sticky stuff. <laughs> yes, yes. And so that will then create foam. Mm-hmm. So you would need to have a foam abatement system, especially on load variation type of applications in the industrial sector. So the foam abatement system can be a spray type system where it takes wastewater that's uh, clean or clarified wastewater and uses that for the spray units that are mm-hmm. around the periphery of the tank. And you can also dose a defoamer into that as well so that it knocks down the foam that is generated from these varying load conditions and the exceller, extracellular polysaccharide. Yeah. Well, and it, it also helps if you're dealing with, like you mentioned before, CIP, clean and place Correct. products. You know, some of them are surfactants, some of them detergents yeah. and so forth. So, yes, the surfactants, yes, anionic surfactants, especially. <laughs> the devil, <laughs> yeah. basically. Okay. So, you know, when we were talking, then, you mentioned, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And then the, the, the other, just, just to mention this, mm-hmm. if you have multiple reactors, and this is something that you want to plan for especially if you have high load conditions, and especially if you're in warmer temperature climates like in Arizona, it may be beneficial to have a step feed process. And the step feed process allows the operator to offload the first reactor and Mm -hmm. direct a portion of the wastewater to the second reactor so that you are able to maintain a mixing density and loading addition within that first reactor that meets the reactor design requirements and limitations of the reactor itself. So mm-hmm. the attached growth biofilm in the first reactor is going to want to consume all of the BOD, even though it's beyond that of the capacity of, say, the aeration grid and the blowers, it's going to try to consume all of the BOD in a warmer climate. Yeah. Older climates, it'll moderate. And so the load will be shared from the first reactor to the second to the third. But in warmer conditions, Uh, It's all going to want to be consumed in that first reactor. So you need to offload the first reactor and step feed a portion of that wastewater to the second reactor. And that way you share the load and you also are able to effectively treat the wastewater in a way that you're not overloading the first reactor. You're not getting an anoxic condition or high foaming condition. So it it allows you to optimize the system to a very high degree. So I, I, I certainly... I'm an advocate of step feed applications, especially for high load conditions. It makes the difference. Like you said, that that first reactor, you know, will try to just consume and then overgrow and then the foaming and foaming over a reactor is never a good thing. No. That, that, sometimes <laughs> it's really slippery too. <laughs> exactly. I got some on my boots one time that I still have left my boots out in the uh, garage to air out. <laughs> I just cannot get that stink off. <laughs> I understand completely. Yeah. Now let's talk about some troubleshooting. What are some lessons learned, some things to keep an eye out for that you've seen over your your years of of, uh, design? This is really where some insight over time 
allows you to understand these systems in a way that you can troubleshoot. Mm -hmm. Let me just preface that with troubleshooting can only effectively take place if there is data that is being gathered and logged. So that the application parameters of the system design is really set up in a way that you're meeting the wastewater requirements with the sizing of the system, the blowers and the operation of the plant, the nutrient dosing. But at times, if you have load conditions or variations of what kind of product is being produced, or if you have CIPs that are generating, say, toxic chemicals such as parasitic acid, or quaternary ammonia, you can have a a difficulty with the the population of bacteria to sustain the population through these toxic shocks. But you need to always go back to the data that is gathered and generated throughout the day. So a log sheet is important to be filled out by the operator as far as taking data on your dissolved oxygen levels, your pH of the wastewater. pH needs to be maintained between 6.5 6.5 and 8.5, optimally 7 to 7.5. Yeah. You need to also understand your flow conditions, your temperature conditions. And then from there, you're doing jar testing through HOC type of test kits. For COD, you want to also test for your ammonia nitrogen on the back end, phosphorus, along with on the front end as well. So you yeah. need to take samples before and after so that you can understand what the wastewater conditions are that the treatment system is seeing, and then what's being affected on the process on the back end as far as are you meeting your requirements? What needs to be adjusted? Are, do you have enough nutrients? Because once you start to a troubleshooting type of question and answer period with the operator, the operator doesn't have this information. You're really starting with nothing. You almost have yeah. to start gaining that data to start troubleshooting the system. Yeah. Yes, and that happens all the time, sadly. Yes, and, and it, it's it's one of the most important aspects of a plant operation is is to make your rounds and due diligence with not only the mechanical aspects of the system, but also the process and understand what the process is seeing, number one, how the equalization tank is handling the load conditions, what's coming off the equalization tank, how the pH is being adjusted in the equalization tank, does mm-hmm. it need to be trimmed in the MBBR bioreactors? Did you run out of chemical? Did you run out of nutrients? Is the temperature of the wastewater too warm, where now it's starting to fall off in its overall performance? Uh-huh. Nitrification of ammonia can start to drop off if you start to have temperature conditions that are over 90 degrees. Yes. So you have to be very careful with, again, the data to allow the troubleshooting to occur in a way that you can meet the overall demands of the system to write the system. And Heather, I know you've been in several applications where CIPs are coming down or change in production or, or, yeah. or wastewater changes. And there has to be adjustments that take place, not only in the waste treatment plant, but also what's going on on the production floor itself. It's always lovely when the two sides talk to each other. And usually with more than a five minute notice, Mm-hmm. But <laughs> well, as you and I have also discussed, when the pushback takes place from the waste treatment plant to production to get their act together or communicate, if management doesn't understand the importance of the waste treatment system, 
And if the operator is not being listened to or the coordination with production with the operations of the plant is not occurring, you can lose a good operator. Somebody yes. that really understands how to operate the system, optimize the system, save them money in not only energy consumption, but chemical consumption, sludge production, and in any downtime that could occur. Because if a system goes down, as far as uh, not effectively treating the wastewater, you need to then look at the impact on the plant. And that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. Yeah. So it's of optimal high importance to have that coordination. And if, if an operator is a good operator, you need to listen to the operator because they are maintaining the integrity of the entire plant. I compare it to like your colon. No one pays attention to it until your colon's backed up. <laughs> then everyone wants to solve the problem. But if you could prevent that from happening, you know, <laughs> then everything goes yeah. much more smoothly. There's a very interesting story about how the uh, the colon is king, you know, so. All right. We might have to cover that someday. <laughs> we'll have to cover that someday. Yes. So, so that's the bottom line of troubleshooting is coordination, data gathering, and then from there, maintaining your system, your equipment, and uh, mm -hmm. making sure that everything is operated in an equilibrium state in as much as possible. And you'll have fantastic, great success with these MBBRs. And again, on, on the back end of the MBBR process, there is the clarification and dissolved air flotation. That's really why, where the operators spend most of their time is to make sure that the clarification or the dissolved air flotation process is working properly with their yeah. dosing regimes of, uh, say, flocculants or coagulants and things of that nature that may need to be monitored and controlled. Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to throw this in there, too. I swear you need a microscope. Yes. You, you need to know <laughs> if you've got the, you know, the hot test kits, you need a microscope to go with it just to keep an eye on how your bugs are doing. Yes. Microscopy is optimally important here. You need to understand the population of bacteria and how healthy the, uh, the bacterial population. That's my two cents on that. Excellent point. Anything else you want to add before we transition to the, the tidbit for today? No, I, I, I don't need to add anything further except, you know, for the fact that, uh, Oxygen, pure oxygen type systems or nanobubble technology can enhance the capacity of these systems as well. And oh, okay. that is that is a, a new evolution of uh, technology so that you can even increase the capacity and or reduce the footprint in as much as possible with this innovative technology that's coming on the scene at this time. You know, you never know where you might need to wedge one of these in. So that is correct. That helps. Cool. Well, thank you, Dan. And uh, like I said, let's let's move on to the the Wanda's Water tidbit. This is the part dedicated to my mom, and it's the part of the podcast where we share something that's unusual and sometimes even brilliant about water. And I was excited that you'd actually kind of heard of this this uh, that we're going to discuss today. We're going to cover the Mempemba effect. I hadn't heard of the name, but I kind of knew what it what it was. Mempemba effect is basically when you have two bodies of water and they're identical in every way, except for one has a higher temperature than the other. And then when you put them into you know, identical sub-zero surroundings, the hotter water freezes first. You said you had done one of these experiments with your grandma? Yes. Uh, actually, when I was in uh, grade school, probably fourth mm -hmm. grade, my grandmother asked me, which ice tray do you think is going to freeze first? The one with the warm water or the one with the cooler water? 
Mm-hmm. And I was guessing there's the cooler water because it's closer to the temperature it needs to be. And so did the rest of the family. And she put the ice cube trays into the re- into the freezer. And lo and behold, it was the one that had the warm water froze first. So it awakened us to the Mpemba effect, even though we didn't know what that was really all about. It was a mystery. Yeah. It was a mystery. <laughs> Well, and you know, it's it's good that it's a mystery because it was a mystery to Aristotle, Bacon, Descartes. I mean, like all of these people have tried to explain what happens. It's like one of the phenomena where you get hail in the summer, but not in the winter a lot of times. To me, it seemed kind of wrong or counterintuitive. Like you were saying, you all thought it was going to be the cold ice cube tray, not the hot ice cube tray. Now, the the effect is actually named after a 13-year-old Erastum Mpemba from Tanzania. And he and his fellow students were making ice cream and they used a mixture that had boiled milk. And they had a concern because the hot objects could damage the refrigerator they were using and they were supposed to let their mixture cool before putting it in the refrigerator. But because the refrigerator space was scarce, when another one put his in without boiling the milk, Mpemba decided to put his in with hot mixture and then without waiting for it to cool. And he found that his mixture froze first. Now, the, the next part of the story is what I really love. is like he kept pestering his physics teacher on why this would work or why this would happen. And that's exactly what I do. And, you know, basically they're like, look, all I can say is that Mpemba physics are not universal physics. And, you know, like you're, you guys just did that experiment more recently. They're still debating this. You know, we don't know if it's based on the difference in densities of water, evaporation, uh, convection currents, covalent bonds, impurities. Uh, Some say, you know, the impurities of a tap water freezes faster than distilled water when they're hot. But is that really the right answer? No one knows yet, Dan. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure that Elon Musk will have a task force to figure this out. And so we can actually go to Mars. Oh, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. (laughs) I'm like, I'm willing to make a million dollars or so for it. But uh, so the question is, since you're in that that northeast area, you'll have to tell me if your hot water pipes are more likely to burst in your cold water pipes during the winter. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, The hot water pipes, you've got to make sure that they are insulated as well, because, yes, they can they can also freeze. So see, still modern day applications and concerns. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, they never end. For those listeners who are are really interested into this, I'm including the link to a fun 10-page paper uh, in the show notes for it. But uh, if you answer that question, make sure you send me an email uh, because I would love to know what the final answer is. And Dan, I really want to thank you for joining me today for going through this whole moving bed biofilm reactor process with us. I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me, Heather. And it's always a pleasure talking with you about biological treatment and bacteria and all of the microbes that you are so intimate with. So it's it's always exciting. <laughs> it's an adventure. It is. Great. And you know, if you want to ask Dan some questions, we'll put his contact information in the show notes, as well as a link to some videos for the Mempemba effect. And with that, well, thank you for joining us for the Water Break Podcast. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast 
at probiotic.com. 